Standard Issue for all women. Hello, Hannah here and welcome to this episode of the Standard Issue podcast. This week we're doing something a bit different. As you're probably well aware, the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, the largest arts festival in the world, starts on August the 2nd. So we've spoken to five, count them, five brilliant women who are taking their comedy shows to the Fringe this year. First up is Callie Beaton, who came in to talk to us about her show Invisible, about starting comedy in her 40s and about what there is to celebrate for the over 50s. Spoiler alert, it's loads of stuff. Jen and I spoke to Jess Fosterkew about her new show Hench, about why physically strong women are still very much attractive, and the joys, although I'm not sure she'd always pick that word herself, of raising a little boy. Mick chats to Desiree Birch about her show Desiree's Coming Early. They talked about being a late bloomer, about how we get stuck in cycles and about how change needs to happen to find yourself. Jen met up with Laura Lex, who is also appearing at one of our In Conversation shows at the Fringe, and more on that later, about her show Knee Jerk and about how we should all prioritise where our anger goes. And last, but very much not least, Mick, who's been a right busy bee this week, spoke to Tiffany Stevenson about the ongoing battle for reproductive rights and her new show Mother. That's all coming up now. I know, we're really spoiling you. We, and by we, I mean me, Jen. Hello. And Hannah. Hello. Are joined by comedian Callie Beaton. Hi, Callie. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming in. You are currently gearing up for the Edinburgh Fringe, where you'll be performing your new show, Invisible. What is Invisible about, and what inspired it? Well, it was inspired by, you may have noticed, in January this year, a B-list French celebrity by the name of Yann Moi. I shouldn't really give him the airtime, but anyway, he made the global headlines when he said that a woman, when she turns... 50 is unlovable and invisible. That's what he said. And you may also remember there was a big outpouring of perky bottoms and boobs on the uh, internet for people posting pictures of themselves at 50. 50 plus women. Cracking 50 plus women absolutely spammed him with their tits and arses. I say it's 50 plus women. It was way more than 50 women, but they were all 50 plus. So um, obviously I think that that was dealt with in an appropriate manner by many, many women. But I decided that this might be a good idea for me to do a show this year called Invisible visible not least because I turned 50 just a few weeks after he said that so I thought it'd be an experiment to see if anyone by August can still see me we can still so see you can you're you see definitely me now? here okay, yeah that's good but it's not August yet so it's all to play for so it was kind of looking at that as a as a cliche about women at a certain age and I guess lots of people think that happens a bit younger than 50 And actually, my thesis on it, which is much grander than it really is, um, (laughs) is that I've never actually felt more visible than I do now because I was not a conventionally sort of attractive or noticeable person at all the life phases when people assume certain things that, you know, in your 20s, you're really hot and it's all going on and you're fanciable and it's amazing. I didn't really fit in with that mould. And I've sort of everything seems to have gone a bit contrary to what people might expect. So actually, it's much more of a celebration as to what women my age can do and are doing, because I think I'm fairly typical that I'm not invisible and I'm not fading away. Am I right in thinking that you've been through the perimenopause and hit menopause and you're out the other side of it now? Yeah, I'm out the other side of menopause. Actually, I had cervical cancer when I was a bit younger, so I went through it all quite quickly. So I was on HRT. This is jolly, isn't it? I was on HRT quite young, so I'm out the other side, but I'm still on the HRT because Helen Mirren's still on it, allegedly, and look how good she looks. I've decided it's going to make me... If it's good enough for Helen... 
yeah, I mean, I'd like her career as well, but I'd also like to look as good as she does in a frock at whatever age she is. So, yeah, so I'm out the other side, um, pretty much. What did you learn going through it? That it's not at all well documented what actually happened. So I realised, I had a a sort of big day job at the time, so I I was working um, at board level for Viacom, who Mm. own, you know, Paramount Pictures and Comedy Central and all that stuff. And I noticed that lots of women who were a bit older than me had left their careers sort of ahead of me so the next sort of generation ahead of me I hadn't really thought why but I did notice women were sort of peeling off not because they were getting fired but they were just sort of leaving and I thought oh maybe that's when you reinvent or you retire and it was only as I got close to that age that I realized how much you go you, you, you well I went a bit insane for about two three years with it and I would say it was probably 80% hormonal and I properly went a bit nuts and I just couldn't I couldn't cope and I couldn't do that job. And there's no support. You lose a lot of people from good jobs at mm-hmm. that age. So for me, it was a full-on non-hilarious implosion <laughs> that I'm now mining for, for funny. But, um, yeah, it's not. no one really talks about it in a, in a way that looks at the kind of... It, the people. A lot of women commit suicide because of the menopause, and that isn't talked about, particularly on a, on a jolly podcast where people mm-hmm. don't want to think about that. We tackle serious subjects yeah. too. So what do you wish you had known before going into it? First of all, I wish it was something that was... I think even the name is not great. Like As soon as you hear the name menopause, the word... It doesn't make me want to hear about it or talk about it. If I'm, there's, there's something alienating about the word, and perhaps it's how we've heard it as we've grown up. Or it's, it's not a great word, and it's got men in it, which is a shame. Um, but I think it's not really a pause either. It's, it's a not, full stop. It's a full stop. Apparently, it's. I think the origin of it is either Greek or Latin, and it's it's stop the moon. So that's what it literally is. Obviously, the moon our... is over. <laughs> the mo- stop no the more moon. moon for you, ladies. <laughs> I think the only thing we've got left that's certain is the moon, isn't it, and the sun. <laughs> so let's not stop it. I think I wish that people had just like there's lots of stuff you don't know when you have a have a baby. You know, lots of people in terms of how it is to juggle all of that, and it certainly wasn't talked about much openly when I was having my kids at work. There was no one around me that had had a baby. I was on the first to have one at MTV. It was a young company. I was I was young. I had a baby. I didn't know how hard it all was. I thought I just had to crack on. And the same, I think, with the menopause, that if people acknowledge the fact that it isn't something you can necessarily breeze through, you might seriously feel physically and mentally very unlike yourself. And if there could be a way for companies and businesses and the world to support that in a kind of more overt way rather than people having to style it out so I wish there'd been um yeah just more of a conversation about it um and and it isn't just all the kind of oh I had the odd hot flush and it's not all the sort of humorous stuff there's some really horrible things that go with it yeah Yeah. it's interesting because you say that about the word because actually oddly in the same way that middle-aged has become a bit of an insult menopausal has become a bit of an insult that's sort of thrown at women or at least a cliche exactly to say oh just that bunch of menopausal women or a bunch of middle-aged women as if that in itself devalues what they might be saying or doing or yeah there was um I wrote, wrote a piece for the Guardian recently that was inspired by something so Eva the brilliant Eva Wiseman who I love read all her so she wrote a, she wrote a lovely piece that was sort of pro the menopause from the point of view I guess she's probably in her late 30s and it was her saying how brilliant it was that she was getting this information handed down from older women and it made her really understand the menopause a bit more and think it wasn't taboo so it was a really brilliantly spirited article but she then said all this 
stuff that made me want to write something, which was, you know, and how great it'll be to like think, yeah, what if I want to wear chinos and a swishy cardigan and statement jewellery, <laughs> and I won't, and I won't care by then. It'll be brilliant. I can't wait to be liberated from caring about sort of fashion. And I thought, okay, that is where you've lost me because that's exactly the stereotype yeah. we don't want. So my whole thing was about it's not one size fits all. We don't all want to wear swishy cardigans and big bright jewellery. And if you do, good on you. But you might not. So it's. I it's... am quite partial to a linen jacket. I know you're not really down with them, but they're, they're very cool in the summer. Yeah, but the thing is, you've got that. You've got that sort of you know ironic twist. So you could wear a linen jacket and you'd look quite cool. If I wore one, I'd look like my nan on a sports day. So you've got that. So it was. I heard um... your nan was very cool. <laughs> my nan was actually very cool. She was a Max Factor model back in the day. Wow. <laughs> yeah. She was. But it's um yeah. So I think it's more. I guess nobody wants to be stereotyped, do they? Whatever bit of your life you're in you you understand the nuances of it and nobody likes the broad brushstroke approach to what they're going through absolutely and i think sorry sorry i think as well that whole idea of being invisible for women of a certain age to become invisible it's quite easy for younger women to go oh god i can't wait i can't wait to be invisible it must be great not to get the cat calling but it's it's not like that at all. I think we all want to be seen to an extent. Yeah. Not necessarily like wolf whistles from a white van man, but not just ignored or like our needs and wants in society just aren't considered anymore. I think the bit the bit that most kind of um, got my dander up when that French guy said that was that he totally misunderstood, I think, what the actual nub of it is for women my age. And I think lots lots of women in their fifties and beyond look awesome. Um, so and, and they they just do. That's not whenever people say you don't look like you're fifty. I always think, well, why don't you look at a few more fifty year olds? Because I do. Yeah. Um, so that's the first thing. So we are visible. We can you know shag people and have fun and be noticed. Absolutely, nothing's changed. In fact, I feel better about that side of myself than I did in my forties because I've got a bit more self esteem. So that's that's the first sort of myth. But the second thing that's misunderstood is what does actually happen to women, which is worthy of someone making global headlines, is we become invisible to ourselves. I think we suddenly, I suddenly questioned the point of me. Something made me feel very redundant. And it was partly hormones, partly my kids leaving home. Mm -hmm. Lots of things went on that made me really question where I'd gone. And and that was a much more sinister form of invisibility. And and I feel coming out of that's been much harder won. So ironically, somebody making a frivolous remark about women not looking good, that's nothing to do with what women are grappling with. And not just women my age, you know, it can be really hard if you don't think you fit into what you're meant to be doing at a certain time. And what society is telling you to do, it can be really hard for, for anybody. So that's what I think, personally, invisibility is more connected to is what's going on inside us. Yeah, I mean, we are invisible sometimes as well if you look at for things like, you know, sort of statist- statistically or sort of in in policy. Mm. I yes, always, that's certainly true. I mean, yeah. I always joke that I still smoke because then there's something for me in the budget <laughs> because I'm not, I'm not a mother, I'm not a family, I'm not a student, I'm not a pensioner, I, I'm nothing. Yeah. I just exist. And nothing is ever done for me or pitched at me. It's always, yep. and it's largely because I haven't got children. A, a huge degree of that is because I don't fall into the category of family. Yeah. Or certainly don't fall. I have a family, but not yeah, in yeah. the sense that they have there. So I think sometimes, certainly with things like, you know, medicine and things, we are in some way invisible mm-hmm. in, the, in that sense. And that's not what he meant. And that's actually the stuff that needs tackling. It I is. Think. Yeah. And actually, it's funny you say that because we never notice the kind of unconscious bias towards people that aren't us, do we? We always kind of think of it from our angle. Yeah. 
And I know similarly that people assume at a certain point, I'm a, I've been a single mum my kid's whole life, and similarly the sort of level of redundancy you feel and the different quality the empty nest has for somebody who's yeah. on their own that's also I might say it's better than being stuck with someone you hate and having yeah. no excuse but, <laughs> yeah. and having to think about having sex with them again for the first time in 20 years so it could be worse <laughs> but I guess what I'm saying is it's interesting isn't it that we don't notice the subtlety of the thing that's ignoring us or making us feel marginalised yeah. so actually I think that guy just made himself look like a well quite a bit of a dick he so missed the whole point plus did you see him I was like he's the sort of guy I've been trying to be invisible to my entire <laughs> life so don't, don't worry about not <laughs> not seeing us we're fine thank you <laughs> am i right in thinking that you went on a bit of a rip-roaring road trip of self-discovery i didn't mean to it's a bit of a uh, plot spoiler but so i've always been a bit um either unlucky or ungifted in love maybe it's my fault but anyway it hasn't quite worked out many many times and i ended up for my birthday going to Reykjavik in iceland with a boyfriend a year ago and he he dumped me as we arrived <laughs> in oh, wow. Reykjavik wow. Wow. I mean I must have been good to lose such a winner I know and also it's only a three-hour flight I was like what did I do anyway <laughs> um so he yes yeah, so he dumped me and obviously I'm smiling now but it was reasonably devastating yeah, at the course. time I'd also been dumped five years before that on my birthday by someone who lived with me and who walked out of my house I never saw him again my birthdays haven't been good and so what was going to be a sort of devastating, I need to come home, you know, I called my daughter who's 19 and she'd just come back from Iceland on a geography school trip and I was like, honey, I'm, you know, I'm really embarrassed to say it, but I've got to come home, you know, he's dumped me and she knew him. And she and a few of my girlfriends were like, just kind of stay a little bit longer, just stay till tomorrow, just see what happens, kind of act like you're on holiday with us, call us, show us, FaceTime us, like we'll be your virtual kind of Reykjavik buddies. So instead of going to Reykjavik and being sensible and thinking, oh, I'll just go and have a nice little reasonable break in a city, I decided I would. This was all like fueled by insanity and, and devastation and humiliation. So I hired a car and drove into properly remote nuts. I didn't know how remote a country <laughs> could be or how hypothermic it could be. So and I didn't have snow tires. I didn't have a sat nav. My phone went dead. I literally went from being like, "I am woman, hear me roar," yeah. you know, "Who cares? I am woman, where the fuck am I?" <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It was like fuck the patriarchy. And then three hours later, it was like fuck. I've got no food. I don't know where I am. Um, and all I've got for warmth is like a Primark puffer jacket I've borrowed <laughs> off my daughter. That road trip ended up, um, you know, I had a pretty hairy time and did literally nearly die. And then I ended up staying on longer, not shorter. And it was, you know, you have those defining trips. I think doing that trip in that environment is so beautiful and it was so surreal and so extreme. It sort of... Um, to say I rebirthed sounds a bit. Um, it makes me sound like a, a right twat, but something quite, um, something <laughs> quite, something quite significant happened. And I think I'd never thought I was resilient. And all my mates were like, "You're strong. You've got kids on your own." I was like, "I'm just not. I'm just like everyone else, muddling along." And suddenly, that trip became quite kind of meaningful and it felt all the better that that had happened in the face of yet another sort of dick going you're not for me so yes I did have a bit of a bit of an epiphany out on the uh out on the Icelandic roads. Well, you sound like someone who's had quite a few epiphanies because obviously you were <laughs> talking a slow learner <laughs> you were talking earlier about quite high-powered high-flying jobs you had and you quit it all to become a comedian 
Yeah, I did. And again, I didn't mean to. So, and, and, it, and, and, and I've become a comedian by accident. <laughs> it's, well, I, it was kind of by accident. So it wasn't like I had a lovely little plan of, oh, well, I've got this career and then I'll transition to comedy. And it's been really... Yeah, no one has that plan. No, no one does. <laughs> and it's been really messy. But um, yeah, I had... Do you want a quick name-droppy story? Just Go so you can, it, yeah. you can give, So when I worked at Comedy Central, I worked with lots of amazing kind of on-screen talent. But I was very much the boring business brains of the operation. So I was operating at senior level as a kind of make the money person, not a cool creative. But I did used to travel with some of the on-screen talent to try and get money invested in the shows. And I met Joan Rivers a few times and we ended up in Cannes together at an event. And I sort of did the warm up for her at a business event. And I was supposed to just be getting people excited about, you know, Viacom and all the things we were going to do. But of course a group of sort of pissed up TV executives don't care about the messaging, they just want to see her. So I kind of just kept the room alive for a bit and I did a few of those things with her and then she said to me just before she flew home and not long before she died, but I don't think it was connected, uh, she said said you should take up stand-up, Callie, you know, you've got a real sort of flair for it. And I said, look, I'm 45, I've got two kids, I'm a single mum, one of them's got special needs and I've got a massive day job, the ship's sailed. And she said, Callie, I'm 81. You're going to look back at this and think you were in the thick of it. Why didn't you? And it sounds sort of silly, but actually regardless of who it was, she was someone I admired hugely. And for an 81-year-old badass woman to say to me when I was 45 you're in the thick of it. I think everyone can do with hearing that at every stage in yeah. their lives. Because it would have been... Now I'm 50, I'm like, thank God I did it at 45 because I was young and it was fine and it still is. So it was it was actually that chance conversation that got me into it. And then it was just idiocy that it's ended that I've ended up leaving the job someone said to me how have you got a different view of Edinburgh over the years I'm like yeah because I used to be on everyone's list and they wanted me to come to everything and now I, they're like Callie who what you know so it has changed it's flipped a around a little bit yeah I've lost all status and potential <laughs> and hope and money yeah and free bars <laughs> and free, yeah exactly are you excited about going up to Edinburgh notwithstanding all of the above yeah I'm really excited there's some, I mean it's really easy isn't it to get so sort of up ourselves about how hard it all is and the money and the insecurity and and all of that's real but actually I keep trying to think well it is actually amazing to be telling a story I want to tell in a way I want to tell it the year I've turned 50 it feels way the most exciting show it's not my first solo show but I'm much more excited about this than anything I've ever done and it does come after a really difficult period of mental health for me so actually I don't know if I'm going to be like the phoenix that rose from the ashes or like something no one talks about or ever mentions again. But I do know getting as far as doing this particular show it sort of means actually does mean the world to me. So I'm quite I'm quite proud of this show. Well, I'm sure your worst case scenario won't happen, but I think it touches on what you mentioned earlier, which was about not being invisible to yourself. Yes. Yeah, it, it's funny. It took me, as it does everyone writing a show, I think, it took me a really long time of... Right, it didn't even get the title Invisible for quite a long time. So it started as one thing and ended up as something quite different. And even when I knew it was called Invisible and I sort of had the fire in my belly to write it, it took me a really long time to work out what did I think about invisibility, honestly, because I think you've got to really know your opinion before you try and get subtle and funny about it. And it took me ages to work out what I actually thought about it. And that process was was worth any number of difficult things that might or might not happen in Edinburgh so it's out it's not redemptive I don't feel like I'm sorted now but I feel like something important's happened and I think I'm saying something 
that people aren't hearing. I'm getting quite a sort of strong response from not just from women and not just from women my age, um, but from a quite a broad sort of... I don't think people are hearing this stuff in this way. And that feels really... That does feel exciting. So hopefully I won't just be shouting out of an open window. I hope not. I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> if you could go back in time and give yourself some advice before you headed into this maelstrom of hormones and emotions, what would you say to earlier Callie? The biggest thing I would say to earlier Callie is all, I've never belonged and I've never felt good enough to be anywhere in my life. I've always had massive raging imposter syndrome and thought any second now I'm going to be found out. And getting into comedy has been brilliant in that it's introduced me to pretty much an entire community of people who don't belong, which made me feel you know, a bit less odd about that and maybe it's talked about more. Mm-hmm. But it's that no one knows what they're doing and everyone thinks they're going to be found out. And I just wish someone had told me that when I was, well, 30 years ago. I might have saved loads of time being a sort of overachieving perfectionist fuckwit and got into <laughs> something that mattered a bit sooner, actually. So, um, yeah, so I guess it's that, that no one knows what they're doing and I, I always say it to my kids, you know, so everyone's blagging it. Yeah, we're all winging it. <laughs> Just to blag it well. And if it doesn't work, do something else. So, yeah, it, it sounds obvious, doesn't it? But when you're younger... You don't know that. Everyone's trying to style it out. It's just like I always say, what would George Osborne do? <laughs> he would absolutely style it out. Yeah. <laughs> I know that next time I get lost on holiday, I'm going to style it out and say it was a, um, an, an impromptu journey of self-discovery. Yeah, it's, and also whenever you go, pretend that somebody, the love of your life, dumped you because I got so much free shit on that holiday. <laughs> so it's worth... Really? Yeah, you got that is worth knowing. Oh, it's really worth knowing. You get upgrades in hotel rooms. You get free. You get free stuff everywhere. Did you have to cry? I mean, I didn't have to try because I was crying virtually for two weeks. But um, I know sometimes I said it in a sort of you know polished, competent way and still got free shit. Awesome. Yeah, because then you look brave and devastated, Mm, stoic, which is pretty winning. Yeah, (laughs) stunning and brave. Where can people hear about you being stunning and brave in Invisible? Where is it on in Edinburgh, and what dates, please? So it's on at the Assembly George Square and my first preview is on the 29th of July. So I've got two preview nights and then I go into my full run, which goes on until the 26th of August. I'm on um, every day apart from the 13th and it's at 10 past five. Wonderful stuff. And where can people find you on the Internet Superhighway? So I'm at Callie Beaton on Twitter and Instagram. Callie, thank you so much for coming in and chatting to us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. We are joined by standard issue favourite, I have to call you that, Aww. because you are wonderful comedian, Jessica Foster Hello. Hello! Here I am. <laughs> Someone's given me a post-it note and I've brought my own pen. I've never been better looked after on a podcast <laughs> in my fucking life. <laughs> Smashing out the park, lads. Chair's very comfy. Body feels great. So, Jess, you've come in to talk to us about your Edinburgh show, yeah. Hench. Can you tell us a bit about it, please? Yeah, okay, I'll tell you a bit about it. It's um, it's called Hench, and it's about strength. So, Hench, if you don't know, which I'm, I have learnt in the making of the show, not everybody knows what it means, but it just means big and muscly. Um, so, it's a compliment for men. <laughs> I've had a really, really interesting sort of year, year and a half, uh, where I've been weightlifting for strength, for fun. It's the type of exercise I enjoy, and that's got to be good in it, I suppose, on some level, but also it just sorts me out in the coconut. It's really great for my mental health. And it's not, you know, to change my body in a way that anyone (coughs) sees or anything like that. I just think it's really fascinating, but I got flirted with. The show opens with me telling the story of it. I got flirted with in a gym, and um, 
the person doing the flirting is part of the flirting called me hench and I was really really upset and I I thought oh god this is fascinating how many of my ideas about strength and femininity are caught up what how many issues have I got was the was the issue that it raised and so so the show is a journey I mean there's stuff about parenting in there I've got a hench kid (laughs) (laughs) under the banner of talking about strength in a show I and femininity I talk about his masculinity his strength and I think rage comes into a little bit I and really the broader umbrella is the, the idea of femininity I suppose and all the discussions we've got to have around that there's lots of great discussions that are happening around body positivity and uh, fat activism and all these great movements and all these debates and all these different schools of thought and theories on it and stuff but actually you don't very often hear femininity and uh, athleticism or muscliness certainly not big muscliness discussed in very positive terms certainly not outside of the liberal bubble that a lot of comedians and people in the media work in then um, so I just think it's um, it's ripe for laughing at and having a think about Although totally glorious pictures of Serena Williams. Oh, my. She is something else. She's hench. She is so hench. I mean, she is so hench. I have family members even who talk about her in a way which they would never, ever, ever perceive as being problematic. They just are like, oh, well, I think she's quite manly. Or I don't think that's a particularly um, nice look, you know, or just ever so aggressive. And you're like, oh, well, you know, you sort of sit there over the years going, you're racist. (laughs) <laughs> essentially there's, a, always, there's almost always a layer of that yeah. you've got to check your privileged even as a hench white lady yeah Osfrey in here thinks she looks incredible but I don't think that's what a lot of people watching her be brilliant at her what she does think I think they think no. she doesn't look very womanly and I, that's exactly the sort of thing that makes me go why what are our ideas then of what a woman's meant to look like to still be womanly I can remember when I was younger in British women's sports stars the javelin was huge like mm. Tessa Sanderson and Fasma Whitbread were the sort of the big names yeah. and when you saw them at things like you know sports personality of the year and they were wearing a dress there was a kind of unusualness about the dress yeah. because you'd only ever seen them in the sports kit it's a bit yeah. like seeing your teacher out of school and I remember thinking oh they look weird in dresses yeah but it wasn't because they were unfeminine it's because yeah. You just weren't used to seeing there them. There wasn't dr- their uniform. But, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly be like, that. yeah, when you, if you saw a, ever saw a teacher at a swimming pool, you'd be like, oh, God, I don't like it. If you don't wear them very often, yeah. and this is from someone who's worn a dress <laughs> probably once in 20 years, yeah. people react weirdly to it, yeah. and therefore you feel uncomfortable in it, and therefore you stand weird. Yeah. And you look like, hey, oh, I'm a person I mean, that's not supposed to be wearing a dress. I've got little interest in wearing a dress. I found a happy middle ground in a jumpsuit, which can look like a <laughs> yeah. dress from far away for events. Yeah, yeah. I was um, a bridesmaid from one of my mum's and dad's close friends' wedding. And um, I was five. Within a week before the um, wedding, my, I think maybe they were both watching telly and I hid in the same room underneath a desk. While they didn't pay any attention to me at all, I ate an entire box of dairy milk miniatures. <laughs> and I cut all my hair off down to tufts. Oh, just wow. Just tufts. And I wanted to really wanted to look like a boy called Dan Willis. And I just came out from under the desk and just was ever so chuffed with it. And mum was bawling her eyes out. And I went upstairs and I looked in the mirror and she was like... <gasps> and I was like, I love it. And it was tough. They still stuck me in the dress, which I hate it. But they had to put a floral arrangement on my head. (laughs) (laughs) So what was it about being called hench that upset you so much? Well, spoilers, it wouldn't upset me now. 
I think I would genuinely jump up and down. And I do, and I'm regularly being called in, I'm absolutely asked for it. It's to do with bigness, it's to do with heaviness. I just turned 36, and it, it, the last year and a half have been incredible, mainly down to a very, very, very good therapist. <laughs> um, and addressing some some issues around eating that, and um, body image that I've, I've, I've not been ready to address up until now. I think up until that point, at any point, if I was called anything that inferred big... It would have made me sad. And that's because we live in a world where we are told, women are told, that if you're smaller, that's better. To minimise yourself. Yeah, to minimise yourself. And and this is not something that's only applicable to fat women, big women. Every woman is being told all the time, whether you think you are or not, you are, that if you would be thinner, however thin you are, people think if they were thinner they and smaller, they would be better. And even, even we're being told would be healthier up to a point mm. you know it's i think it's madness there's stuff in the show about it. I think the idea that we're still looking at weight and bmi scales as a as an accurate measure of healthiness compared to you know how someone's actually treating whatever shell they're in is boggling <laughs> to me i guess it would just be that i wasn't ready to be able to take being called bigness or heaviness or strong as a compliment that's really weird because I am almost exactly the opposite to that. Really? If somebody suggested that I was in any way weak, either physically or mentally, I would be horrified by I that. I have that issue too. I have Do the you? combined issue. And that I'm taking longer to work on, this idea of my own strength. I tell the story in the show of giving birth to my son and I think that fundamentally changed how strong I thought I was. Yeah. Or how I felt about... Uh, acknowledging weakness, actually. The idea that anyone said to me that I couldn't cope with something, or, be that, or, be that, like, like I say, emotionally cope with it yeah. or physically cope with it, yeah, makes me very. We've got a bit of angry. toxic masculinity. I think, I think we have. <laughs> we have. I don't know. It's maybe, fine. maybe it's the opposite. Maybe it's feminism. Maybe it's yeah. this idea that I don't need help. I'm uncomfortable around people who cry mm. quite often. I'm like, I don't know what's happening here. I'm going to have to walk over there because I don't know what the appropriate response to this yeah. is because it's not something that I do. I'm like, just pretend everything's fine and then go home and have a small breakdown. Yeah. Because I, I gym, I tie box guys. Yeah. Well, like, I train. I don't actually compete against anyone because I don't, don't want my face to get messed up anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Feminism. Absolutely. Uh, it's going well for me, guys. I had an experience in the gym once where a guy, like, you know, the leg press machine yeah. and all these big dudes in there put 80 kilograms on either mm-hmm. side and you're kind of like, well realistically that's a bit more than I can manage so you're taking all these big like 20 kilogram weights off and it yeah. takes a bit of time and this guy goes to me after I'd done it mind you not while I was doing it after I'd done it sorry I should have offered to help with that and I just said to him why because yeah. I clearly didn't need your help and he looked like absolutely crestfallen I mean the problem is there's probably 95% chance he would never have said that to a bloke he would never have said Even that to a bloke, bloke was slight and looked like yeah. he was sweating yeah. grunting taking him an hour to yeah. unload this thing I mean that's the problem isn't it I can't stand that yeah and I think it's one of the reasons why the conversation with this man who I I was later told was definitely flirting but I I just saw it as yet another bloke in the gym patronising me telling me how to do something the, the amount of people that will come up 
and just oh desperate to give you a little bit of advice perhaps on form I've had someone tell me to do pull-ups wrong like you but you're like oh and now I've got very short shrift it's a short hard I'm so not interested and then if they carry on talking Jeff please fuck off <laughs> in the gym there's something there's a it's that microcosm of fragility and strength yeah. in one place because you're so you're in you have to be in your head to be enjoying it you have to be but there's a fragility about that. Also, you've probably got bits of your body out you wouldn't have out if you were in the street. I don't know. But also, you need to be able to fail in that space. So the idea of being judged by anyone, let alone patronise, I'm quicker to give someone a fucking verbal middle finger there than I am in any other walk of life. You said that all of this exploration of femininity that you're having as a result of the hench comment and, yeah, and what yeah. came out of this made you think a bit about your son and bringing him up. Well, in the sense that before I had him, I desperately... I didn't care if... I remember saying, I don't care if I have a boy or a girl, but I had this idea that I would either have this very strong daughter or this very gentle son because it's the way of the, I want the world to go. <laughs> On the one hand, I had this massive experience when I had him where I had a catastrophic time giving birth to him where I realised I wasn't very strong, no, mentally or physically. So that sort of shook the foundations of my ideas of my own strength. And then um, I'd done a bit of weightlifting before I had him. I'd just be sort of a bit more casual about it. And then now, about a year after he was born, started to get into that again. That started to get me thinking and then as he got older and he will be four in the autumn and has this personality I realised I've not got a very gentle son at all and there's nothing I can do about it he's horrifically non-compliant and sexist and violent <laughs> and, and it's an, ab- an abomination but uh, at one you know the other one on one thing it makes me think is well again it comes if to bring it back to me I'm not great at coping with him as a toddler I think I'm will put my hands up and say I'm not the perfect or even at times a good mum to a toddler. I did always know this would be my hardest bit, hopefully. They're not. They're notoriously not that easy, yeah, to it, be fair. Uh, and also it, his behaviour at this age plays to all of my weaknesses. To parent this age well when they're fizzy, which is the polite way of <laughs> fucking handful, um, I would say you need to be patient, calm, nope. No, composed. No, not me. Um, <laughs> you know, not quick to rage. Oh, shit. And then you've got all of this, and then you're looking at this personality of, in this three-year-old and going, oh, that is... I mean, he's definitely got that from me. Like, it's all of this tumultuousness and physicality. You know, it's entirely... It's because he's three, and it's my fault. It's my gene. So I just think that's fascinating. And, you know, I desperately hope it won't be forever. He's yet to learn empathy, and that's how you temper being a complete monster when you're someone who's <laughs> full of testosterone. Can I ask, when you talk about it, do you find that people reinforce the idea by saying, you know, oh, well, that's all little boys? Have you come across that? Mm. I've had loads of that. Yeah. yeah. And there is a theory, quite a powerful theory, that you hormonally, chemically, are a bit different if you're a boy and a girl when you're three. I think, I don't know how long that lasts. I don't know, though. And I also don't know if I believe it. It's one of those things that yeah. I've been sold. But people uh, and say it friends, all the time, I've had don't friends they? who really, really, really don't think men and women are that different fundamentally. In a, you know, they're down, this is my, that's my favourite flavour of feminism mm. is that we're not, we're just not actually that different and we've been socialised to be. So one theory I heard, I don't know if it's true, is that at one point when a little boy is three, they have as much testosterone in them as they're ever going to have and their only outlet for it is 
aggression. Oh, really? And energy, you know, offload. And also all three-year-olds are going through a massive developmental phase, between two and four and sometimes a bit older. Their prefrontal cortex is going through a huge leap, and that's why they can't control their emotions. And it does it again when you're a teenager, and that's why you go a bit hard work when you're a teenager again and um, he's got no emotional or very little emotional control and at the moment it's so interesting to watch him learn different complexities of emotion there'll be a week and I'll be like oh he's learnt shame there was a week where every time he just fell over which he does all the time whatever banged into something he was suddenly furious because of embarrassment which and I was like oh you've just learnt Shame, it's so interesting. This week he's learnt whispering. <laughs> he's learnt whispering, and he was whispering to a friend's daughter just this weekend, and it looked very cute, and I said, what were you whispering to Maisie? And he said, I was whispering, um, I was whispering, I'm going to cut your neck. <laughs> Psychopath. <laughs> Where's he got that from? <laughs> Do you feel pressure bringing up a son in the current climate. Again, there's only going to be so much you can do, but it's different to how do you make a three-year-old good. We're going to have a generation now, hopefully, of um, parents who are bringing up little boys with a completely different education about consent to anything that any of my peers would have had. Unless, you know, I'm sure there were some incredible parents out there who were totally on it. But as a rule, it wasn't a thing. That was never part of any conversation with me. me And it was never part of any conversation with any of my male peers I don't think and that's going to be different I mean but again pressure to do as much as you can do I don't know I, I, I'm hoping that how what you're like when you're three is no reflection of what uh, you're like when you're 16 but I think it will be different I think yeah, I'm, I'm very hopeful actually that all parents of you know if a parent of a daughter as well is going to be like look you know you do what you want I think there's you know, I'm meeting teenage girls all the time who are more empowered than I certainly was at that age and, you know, I'm meeting these really assertive incredible mm. very young women doing these incredible things and as much as social media terrifies me I'm meeting people through podcasts and whatnot and through activism who are changing the world for the better and using social media like a superpower really but to answer your question as a parent of a boy yeah Good God, a massive load of pressure. I'll do what I can do. Oh, another point, though, I just think it's so interesting, isn't it? He's, he's white, he's middle class. I will make sure as far as possible he knows how much privilege he's steeped in. So, Jess, you are going to be at the Edinburgh Festival yeah. with Hench, which is going to be showing daily at Monkey Barrel at 1.30 from the 1st to the 25th of August. Yeah, not the 12th. Not the day. 12th. And you're also going to be doing your Hoovering podcast, aren't you? Yeah, just do two shows of that, 13th and 14th at 3 o'clock in the same room as my show. So There are some people books, it all is to be confirmed, but I've got two or three really exciting bookings and it's going to be people who I wouldn't normally have access to who perhaps are from America or other places. Um, it's going to be the most diverse lineup I've ever had before because all these people are up there. There's, you know, lots of non-binary people, lots of all sorts of people up there. So um, it's... It's going to be people who I, I'm going to make sure that both panels are people who I w- wouldn't have had access to outside of the fringe. And can I ask just before you go, um, how was the Royal Albert Hall? I should probably yeah. just explain yeah. that's yeah. Uh, the Guilty Feminist did a live show at the Albert Hall. Yes, yeah. and I got to do some stand up at it as well as some other bits and bobs of nonsense. I realised um, in the morning when I woke up, I was so nervous. I thought, oh god, thank god I've been too busy to feel nervous about this. Um, but actually, once I was doing my set, which this doesn't normally happen normally when I play very big gigs, still I am uh, very much in my head during it and I'm thinking about the thing I'm going to say next and madly absolutely 
bonkers, but I was in the moment and enjoyed it and played. And at one point, I looked at my hand that the microphone was in, and it was ever so slightly shaking. And I was like, oh, <laughs> my body's shitting itself. My brains have stayed really calm. Well done, brains. Uh, no, absolutely, without doubt, the gig of my life. Thank oh, you. Oh, excellent. Jess, where can we find out more about where you are and what you're yeah. doing? So for the most up-to-date stuff, I would say please may you follow me on Twitter at Jessica Foster Q, but I do list all my gigs on my website, which is jessicafosterq.com. But the Twitter will obviously be like, I'm doing this in two weeks. I'll be tooting about things all the time. And they're also, I try not to just self-promote on there, and it might even be amusing at times as well. And Instagram's the same, just my name. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. Hi, me again. If you find yourself at the Edinburgh Festival this year looking for something to do, well then look no further. Because we, Standard Issue, are putting on four events at The Stand. The best comedy club in the country, if you ask us. On August the 11th and the 12th, we have two In Conversation events where our guests include the brilliant Rosie Jones, Janet Ellis, just the Janet Ellis, Laura Lex, as previously said, Gemma Kearney. I know. And we do have some more people, but we just can't announce them yet. So probably the best thing to do is to get onto our website, www, let's do it the old way, www.standardissuepodcast.com. And you will see all our live events there. You will also see the other two events that we are putting on at The Fringe, which is two stand-up nights with all female bills. They are completely brilliant. I can tell you two of the people that will be on, and you have heard them already, Callie Beaton and Jess Foster Q are both on at those shows. And there are, in fact, loads and loads of brilliant women on at those. You will find details of those shows at that website as well. Book yourself a ticket. Come along. It will be great. Hello, I am joined on the phone by comedian, actor and writer Desiree Birch. Des, hello. Uh, hi, how are you doing? I'm all right, thanks, mate. Apart from the building work next door, how are you? I'm doing okay, apart from the fact that I'm 10 days out from this festival. And so I'm at the, um, the uh, what part of the hero's journey is that? Where you like Dark Knight of the Soul, that one? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> well, that leads really nicely. So thank you so much for sparing us a bit of time in the run-up to the Edinburgh Festival. On which note... Tell us about Desiree's coming early. Desiree's desperately trying to come early. Desiree's <laughs> still got way too much show to fit into an hour, which is typically the case for Desiree. Is um, that, that's the best way around, though, right? Essentially, I've always sort of been late for everything. Like, I was born late, and I bloom late, and I will get there, but you're just going to have to wait 125% of the time that you would allot for anyone else, because that <laughs> is generally my speed in this life. And so it's funny, because there's this thing of... Um, you know, when they talk about people who are early versus late, it's kind of about perceptions of time. And so, like, you know, early people think that 60 seconds takes 50 seconds, you know, if they have an internal clock and late people think it's 75 seconds by their internal clock. And consequently, I find that most people will write a 50-minute Edinburgh show, which is the appropriate length. And I always create a 75-minute one because, I don't know, that's my theater background and that's sort of the natural arc for me. And it's just, like, not going to be an option this time because I'm not the last show on the bus as I have been in previous years I'm at 7:40 at the hive and there are other people waiting so I'm just going to have to be like okay laugh 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 great that's cool next like we don't have time for this people <laughs> but yeah I mean as far as the show itself I'm looking at loops so I'm looking at when we get sort of stuck in the cycles of life mm-hmm. I think illuminated by a particular story in which I 
found myself caught in a very noticeable, visible, obvious loop in with in a conversation with someone. But also in being in the place where I am in life, I, I think uh, at some point as you age, you start to feel the fullness of time and you feel the cycles of things and you feel that, you know, even though sometimes you're pushing, 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 really what it is going to require is time for perspective to shift and for things to turn around. And Within that, I think that we all sort of live our own narratives, like we're living in our own romantic comedy or action adventure story or whatever, and we create these stories that assist us in getting to the next place, but sometimes it's hard to let go of the last vine you were swinging on and grab the next one, and so you kind of get stuck in that same self-narrative, which can be a trap at a certain point, like everything that's comfortable and moves you at some point becomes a trap, and then you have to change or you suffer, and so it's kind of about dealing with the suffering of being trapped in a place i think i think that's what it's about uh today uh that may change in a couple of days i've still got a week to go so this is all what i've been gleaning this week because you kind of set out to write a show about something and then it becomes a show about whatever the fuck your jokes are telling you what the show about am i right in thinking you went on some sort of quest i mean i guess I don't know. I kind of very regularly have these little mini quests, I suppose. Like I didn't do a, um, I didn't do the road to Santiago or anything. I think most recently I went to Machu Picchu uh, and did the mountain, which I'd never, you know, I'm a fat person that I identified. And so I never thought that I would be going up, uh, you know, 3000 kilometer mountain via stairs. There are a lot um, of steps, a lot of there's steps. a lot of stairs. I, I guess it's 2,500 kilometers and it's 3000 thousand steps um and you feel every single one of them uh-huh. and they're uneven from years of earthquakes and, yep. and you know the volcanic activity that creates uh mountains and which did you find scariest the, yeah. going up or coming down oh down oh down yeah. for sure i mean going up with scary because no matter where you turn there are more stairs and you keep thinking you're there and you go around and there's more stairs and you're like okay this is beautiful and then there are more stairs and you're like I'm never going to make this like there were two German girls who were like going ahead of me and then they turned around they were like it's just stairs as far as you can see and everywhere you go there's more and when I was like the Germans turned around like maybe not even like 40 percent of the way max and I was like well that's intense if I had known what it was, I probably never would have done it. But because I didn't quite know exactly what was going on, my friend who was with me had gone before, but had some memory issues. So didn't quite remember it accurately. <laughs> uh, we sort of threw ourselves into this thing and it was sort of part of a trip and part of, you know, I, I travel is a big part of who I am because obviously as a comic, you travel, but more so leaving the United States for a relationship is what got me here. And that was just me sort of launching myself into a journey. And I, find regularly in life that there are these points at which I just sort of jump and I think that we all do that in our various ways but usually for me it's just kind of like don't think about it go because I'm really good at thinking and so I will overthink myself into you know an inertia that I cannot escape and so sometimes (laughs) you just you just go like seems fine it seems like all the doors behind me are closing and so I have to run through the only one that's open and pray that that's the right direction for me and because it's the one you take it always is the right direction for you but so yeah in this show there are maybe not necessarily that last trip I took but there are these sort of times where you just sort of make a jump and justify it later and it's interesting because I think memory allows for us to retroactively sort of retrofit a narrative for who we are and how these things have meaning when ultimately you know you took a left you know (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah. I agree with you. And you describe yourself as a late bloomer. What? Yeah. What were you? What were you waiting to bloom? Which Which aspects <laughs> of that? <laughs> what was I waiting? On? No, I mean, I think sort of physically, sexually, in certain ways, like as a teenager, and I think just sort of adolescence, because I was very much a sort of responsible middle child, good in school. And because I was a fat kid, I needed to distinguish myself in a way that I could sort of master and maintain. And that was it. And I I was also sort of like the responsible one that would be held with the keys when my parents were away at work and things like that. What that means is that everyone is going to go through their adolescence at some point. And when you do it at 17, it's cute. And when you do it in your 30s, it's kind of tragic. (laughs) But, you know, it's going to happen at some point. Like you do just kind of have to unravel and test boundaries or, or discover that there are any. And I think a lot of times when you are the responsible glasses wearing nerdy one in charge that you're kind of looking for boundaries. A lot of times I think I was sort of left to my own devices because I was independent and took care of myself. And I was a middle kid. So everyone's just like, yeah, she's fine. She gets good grades. I mean, what's she going to do, right? You know, like, and so then I think once I had the chance to do what I was going to do, I really did a bunch of everything, <laughs> as much as I could think of within my realm of, of challenging myself. So I think in, in that way, and, you know, in love and relationships and uh, all of those things, like I've always kind of come to those things late. And I talked about this in Unfuckable, my last show, where I was just like, I was the kind of kid who would love to read a book about something before I did it so that I could, you know, that's, <laughs> a, that's a control freak's way of being like, I'm going to make this safe for myself because there's really nobody else looking out, you know, for me if I fall. So I really have to make this as safe as possible, even though reading a book about something or or trying to learn things in your head is just an illusion of security because you're just pre-gaming for actually living life, you know, but at some point you got to live it. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you were put in a box by other people and it took you a while to work out it wasn't the right fit for you? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, but there's only, you know, we all like, it, it always sort of takes two to tango. I think that the nature of things is that, yes, people are going to put you in a box uh, no matter who you are. And if that box is a little bit more rigidly defined by, you know, ethnicity, by gender, by, you know, uh, your body and just what people assume that you can and can't do or will and won't do, the kind of person that you are and the kind of person that you aren't, at some point you both take that on and wear it and kind of sink into the feel of what it means to live in that suit. Mm -hmm. And then you also are constantly pushing against it to be like, wait a second, there's more to me than you are seeing because you're stopping at your own mental narrative of who I am. You haven't actually even met me yet. And so you're kind of constantly challenging the world to like, look at me, which all of us, you know, want because we're solipsistic, egotistical idiots. But also, I think that gets reinforced when you are not central to the narrative. And I think that there's been a lot of friction in our sort of recent cultural history of people being reactive to those of us who are have not been central to the narrative saying, you know, there are other narratives and you shouldn't really be centralized because we all do live in the same world. And if we accept the basic premise that we are all people of equal worth just by birth, then we have to accept that one narrative should not dominate everyone else mm-hmm. and that everyone else shouldn't have to feel inferior or like they need to adapt to a certain way of being seen in order to be seen. And I think there's obviously been a lot of pushback 
from people feeling that that their stories are being decentralized and not knowing the next vine to swing to, you know, in my random Tarzan metaphor of life, you know, <laughs> being like, how do I move from here if this thing is stagnating? And like, rather than feeling like I should have to move, I'd rather be defensive and fight. But also things change and the entire will to move time backward to a time that was where everything was great again or whatever. That's just not the way time works unfortunately so all of these people who want things to go back are sadly mistaken that they will ever do that you know and i think that there's this weird struggle now where there could be a little bit more collaboration yeah because it's getting i mean and this is putting it mildly it's getting very nasty yeah (laughs) (laughs) yes and this is putting it real real mildly it's getting nasty yeah it is getting it is getting very nasty it is getting a lethal like it is the ways in which we imagine ourselves have real world implications and consequences and i think that the problem lies in that usually okay yes we as i guess the foremost examples of primates have this wonderful prefrontal cortex in which we can imagine the future and we can imagine we can plan things we can imagine what the consequences of our actions might be we can operate a a little bit more intelligently based on that but also when that internal narrative dominates in the face of stimuli from reality that's going no and you don't listen to that like that's when you get stuck it's like you do have to listen and adapt and when you aren't listening that's when history starts to repeat itself and that's when the world kind of feels like it's swirling down a clogged toilet i couldn't agree more (laughs) on a personal level are you bloomed now yeah well let's see i i definitely feel like i am flowering in a in a more substantive way than i ever have before in my life I think part of that is it was turning 40 this year because there's nothing like a woman in her 40s. Like there's nothing that can stop her. You know, Congratulations. I think it's, it's the best thank decade. you very much. I love it. It is the best. And everything about 39 was so stressful and this sort of <laughs> death march toward it and everything post it has been so wonderful and such a relief and being able to shed away the layers of caring. You know, I wonder if at you know, because there are all these other things because you kind of get like, oh, well, at some point the change is going to come and then that's like a death of its own. But also there are plenty of women who are like, oh, yeah, it is, you know, it's hard and nightmare to go through. But also I'm so happy to be beyond that time in my life. And so I don't have to be identified by that. Like I'm looking forward to my crone years yeah, yes. and I'm looking forward to trying and, and endeavoring in my actions to give less of a shit about the more superficial and meaningless things that have consumed a good part of my youth that I am recognizing are of little importance to anyone really over 25. I I think about my parents and just how like how much they had to struggle to pretend to care about the stuff that we thought was important <laughs> in our teenage years and our 20s where it's like um you don't know how to do this and like you don't know who this is you're stupid and all of them are looking at us like you realize that none of that crap matters right <laughs> no no you don't okay <laughs> so and there's literally it's, no it's really great. <laughs> yeah yeah 
no, like only time and your own experience will tell you that. So it's just funny to watch that and also probably fun for them to remember themselves and go like, yeah, I remember when I thought this stuff was important too. So I, even though life gets more complicated and you're more stressed out and you're working harder and there's more to lose and there's more that you still want to do and there's a very clear concept of the hours that are still left and the, the so many that have gone by, there is a greater sense I feel or at least hope or maybe feel in this moment of uh, freedom to try because, you know, you do need boundaries and limitations in order to kind of go, okay, I need to focus everything on what's actually important. Mm -hmm. And so I don't need a thousand choices in a mega grocery store. I need four and I need to figure out which one or two are the most delicious to me. And I need to really enjoy those because there'll be one moment when I'm like there in the grave and before I'm completely out of this universe, I'll be like, oh, I'm going to miss it all, you know? And I want to feel like I've relished as much of it as possible. And I know that I didn't do that in my younger years because I was afraid of how I'd be seen. And it's weird because now being much more prominent in the comedy scene and whatever, there's so much more being seen and there's so much more anxiety around letting every single thing out into the public sphere and how that's going to affect you and if you say the wrong thing you're you know you're relegated to cancel town oh, and that's yeah. where you live now and and it, <laughs> it, it's such a trying time but then you also have to recognize like if I do that while being my fullest self then I really won't have much to regret let's hope you know like if I do do that while actually listening to the world and listening to myself and not listening to some other desire for what I should say or do, which is a hard thing to do, then hopefully I've, whatever, I did it my way. You know, Absolutely. It's, it's, a very, <laughs> it's a very loaded word, but authentic, being authentic to yourself. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes that means saying I was wrong and I'm sorry, you know, like I thought that then and then I got some new information and instead of rejecting it in the face of who I thought I was, I listened and took it in and now I'm different and I hope you can forgive me. And if you can't at this point, that's going to be more on you than it is on me, you know, yeah. Yeah. you have to live with that just a little tangent do you think with the rise of social media obviously we're in our 40s so we yeah. weren't surrounded by it when we were growing up now I, I think for yeah. some for, for for a certain generation it's much much harder to escape the fuck-ups they made it really is i mean and it, it's hard for me and i am bad at social media <laughs> <laughs> you know because i don't engage constantly and there are times when i'm like oh i should probably post this and then i just think ah oh, but i also want it to be mine and like yeah I'll get the boost of people engaging with it and that might be fun and it could make for a great connection or like it could be a big thing but also there's going to be plenty of people who are like why are you talking shut up and die kill yourself and you're like I also don't need to welcome that even though I can steal my mind against that you know because I know that that is that is the uh, the, the, the voice of a very self-loathing person who needs to control somebody else it's still kind of like I don't need that in my day. I'm too busy working and I'm too busy trying to like be present for the day. And I wonder for people who are even five years younger than we are 10, you know, that it's been a little, like I remember getting the internet as a teenager. I, I won't have the same problems as someone who's a decade younger than I am where they've had to uh, be careful about what they posted at the age of 14 because that isn't who they are at the age of 24 when they're trying to work or be a public figure and that they've got to expunge their histories. And also, um, you know, it's weird when you actually put your phone down how much you look around and realize that nobody else is and you're like, 
you people can barely walk down the street, like look up. And I hate to sound like that old person, but sometimes it's kind of like, isn't it a relief? But sometimes once your battery dies, like it is worrisome because you're like, I don't know if I know how to get home. Uh, (laughs) But also it can't. Yeah, I'm just like, I'm trying to get around this country sometimes. I'm like, if I'm in London, sure. If I'm out somewhere else, I'm like, good luck. But still, uh, yeah, it isn't. It is sometimes just a relief to kind of be like, uh, I don't know. I think I'm just going to have to sit here and listen to conversations on the tube and daydream or something because my phone's dead. Desiree, where can people come and see you up in Edinburgh, please? Oh, yes, of course. So if you do happen to be in Edinburgh in the month of August, please come and see me. I will be doing my show, Desiree's Coming, early at 7.40 at The Hive on Midry Street. And I'll be a tour in the fall throughout most of the UK, and I'll be at Soho Theatre in November. So, like, you can come and see me then. Awesome. And where can people follow you being shit on social media? Yes, totally. And just, rah. I'm at Desiree, that's D-E-S-T-H-E-R-A-Y, um, and that's on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. Awesome. Thank you so, so much for sparing some time to chat to us. Of course. It's always a pleasure, Mickey. Thank you so much. Hello, Hannah here. Just wanted to let you know that if you like what we do, you can help us by rating and reviewing us on iTunes. It really does help especially if you give us five stars. Did that sound threatening enough? Give us five stars. I'm joined by in a sort of fairly noisy cafe next door to Broadcasting House because she's got shit to do in a minute. (laughs) Comedian Laura Lex. Hello, Laura. Hi. Hello. Thank you very much for joining us. We are here in this slightly noisy cafe to talk about your forthcoming Edinburgh show, Major. Can you tell us a little bit about what what it's about, first of all? So... I haven't finished the elevator pitch for it, so this is going to sound a bit rambling and convoluted, but it's about prioritising where your anger goes. So basically, the premise of the show is I would really like it if we got on with climate change in a sensible, meaningful way. And I feel like, at the moment, we are really arguing with each other over other things. And I think the arguments are worth having, but our energy in those arguments doesn't always go in the right directions. So, like, as an example, Brexit is obviously the one of the day. don't want to swear on the podcast, but... I understand why people are angry, but for me, aiming my anger at people that voted differently to me is a waste of time when I should be aiming that anger at the people that caused people to vote in a way that I think was deceitful. I'm also looking at feminism and kind of looking at how if I'm feel insecure about being a woman, you know, within career or walking home and I feel sad and insecure, my feeling with that is not then to argue that men are awful or to shout at men about their privilege. It's to look at the structures that have caused my insecurities about it. So I'm kind of trying to take lots of things where people hate other groups of people and walk those fears and arguments back to find the real cause of the problems. Okay, so men didn't, well, they kind of did create sexism, but anyway, whatever. Because they're in charge, right? So, I mean, let's not go too far down this <laughs> this line of thought, but it's not really their fault that it exists, in the same way it's not my fault that, you know, the concept of white supremacy exists, yeah. but you should acknowledge it yes. and realise that you're privileged and yes. whatever. So am I allowed to be angry with a man? if he tells me what I am or aren't allowed to be offended by as a woman? I think you're allowed to. What I'm interested in is, is it effective? 
negative? Is it a waste of your energy? Because I've never seen anger at somebody for something like that make them go, oh my God, you're right, I should change my way of thinking and go and move on. They dig in. And I dig in if somebody shouts at me and somebody goes, you're wrong. And I go, no, I'm not. And then I might wander off and think about it for a while and go, oh, I might be wrong. <laughs> but, I mean, I don't know. These are all theories and I'm just a comedian. I'm not, you know, anybody intelligent. I'm sort of interested in if that happens, is it more effective to shout at the person that's done that to you or to go, why does he think that that behaviour is right? What is there in the education system or in television or in blah, blah, blah that makes that happen? And can I walk this back and find who caused the problem that he is the symptom of? It's quite relevant to the times in which we live. Again, don't want to say the B word, but the like through line for the show is I have eco anxiety, is a which is a medical thing for I've, I've got anxiety, but it's all triggered around climate change and, and plastic and stuff, and I'm really, I really struggle with the the world in terms of that and and even sometimes you know I'll tweet something well I've stopped tweeting about anything important because I can't handle the screaming but but you know you'll say something like oh this would be good for the planet if we did this and 50 people go oh that's your privilege of thinking everybody can afford to do that and you go oh god right okay so we can't make any good changes unless they're applicable to everyone so why don't the people that can afford to do it do it and then that will make it cheaper anyway I think because I don't like to offend people and I think a lot of the time when I see political comedy you have to pick a side and shout from that side and what I've really tried to do with this show is go instead of having sides instead of it being us versus them in whichever incantation of that you were in find the right direction for your anger and go to the root of the problem instead of the symptom there's kind of this thing at the moment called cancel culture where someone does something and and that's it they're, they're dead to us we cancel them it happens I think every second on Twitter um, but do you think we're more offended than we used to be or do you think we're just more willing to stand up for ourselves see I think it's interesting I think we are more willing to stand up for ourselves but I do sometimes think that we've lost the ability to analyse individually that we are a bit herd mentality because the thing with cancel culture that always fascinates me is that it's called cancel culture but really no one gets cancelled it's just lots of consumers decide individually to stop buying the product like you know Louis CK you know or he's been cancelled no he hasn't he's on tour but loads of people have decided not to go we haven't jailed him we haven't guillotined him we've actually become much more accepting of going well you can keep peddling this it's just more people have chosen not to buy it so that that's sort of interesting but then I think there's two really different sides to that there's like the cancel culture of this person's done something awful and then there's a this person made a mistake or wasn't as woke or as intellectual or as well informed as other people or this person did something a really long time ago and has changed their mind I'm very in favor of being flexible with people and going oh you've probably learned something in the last 20 years and you might not stick to this thing that somebody's dug out that you had an opinion of at 18 I'd hate to be judged of my opinions at 18 like god I think I probably had some horrendous opinions about women and feminism back when I hadn't read anything yeah. that's the thing as well isn't it like a lot of it is internalised from the wider society so like you say you probably had some horrendous 
opinions about women and feminism because we have like internalised misogyny like you know there's an internalised racism there's internalised homophobia should we be judged on that or is I guess it's like you say where is the anger directed yeah and also like it depends on your start point because that's another thing I'm talking about in this show it's like you know, like you get stereotyped now. So we're, we're, we're London metropolitan elite, lefty liberal snowflake dickheads. That's us. But, like, I'm talking about in the show how I grew up in a village in Somerset and didn't even meet Catholics. I was C of E as a kid. Didn't even meet Catholics till I was 13, let alone anybody that wasn't white or not in a, like, Western religion. So I'm not the world's biggest expert on racial diversity or cultural diversity or any of this stuff but compared to where I started so I read quite a lot and I do try and keep up but then every now and again somebody comes out with something and I go oh my god what's that am I the worst feminist in the world because I didn't know about that intersectional section of it or am I racist because I didn't know that or blah, blah, blah. and then I sort of think well hang on a minute as much as I've got white privilege and I'm you know trying you haven't got time to sit on the internet and read Every. Me and another comic were talking about this the other day, about my least favourite phrase in the world is, educate yourself. Do me a favour and educate yourself. Because I think, yes, you, you can't just ask questions constantly, but also we have to take into account that some people have done a lot of educating to get to a place where we might still think they were ignorant. I think we have to cut each other a little bit of slack. But that's where I think social media, letting us all shout at each other directly and expect everybody to have exactly the same platform of access to information and people and stuff it's it's had a bit of a negative effect on us judging each other there's a couple of things i think social media but i think twitter particularly is sort of done for us and it's done lots of good things done loads of good things and one of the great things about it is that it's given like minority groups a platform that they wouldn't otherwise have had but yeah we are just all on this platform where we're just all screaming at each other do you think it's made us more fighty I think it's given us an ability to aim that fight at each other directly and, like, piling on stuff. Because, like, do you ever hear it when people say the real world versus the internet? Yes. As if the internet wasn't real people reacting... Like, because I have such a visceral emotional reaction to somebody attacking me online. Like, if I tweet something about feminism in comedy or whatever, blah, 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 and instantly, you know, a load of people will find it, oh, women aren't funny, blah, blah, blah. And it physically makes my heart rate go up. So, calling that not the real world, you go, well, it it fucking is for me, mate, like, when I sat there. So I can't even imagine how it must feel for people that get attacked on way more hurtful points than I would get attacked for. But I think it's that access to each other whereas before you might have held an opinion or fought a corner but you'd fight it with your friends in a chat you wouldn't be able to go directly to somebody you wanted to hurt and just chuck it in their face i don't know i'm very wary with social media now i just always aim to just never hurt somebody online is my is my only aim now. Even if somebody comes to me and says something that's quite hurtful, I will sort of always aim to go, okay, cool, that's your bag. I'm not going to entertain having a slanging match. I start off like that and then I end up in this deeply, deeply passive-aggressive <laughs> thing where I have to tell them my opinion and then go, okay, have a nice day then. Yeah. Uh, but I have to have the... And then they keep coming back going, well, passive-aggressive response. Now you have a nice day. And, and then eventually you have to mute them or you lose yeah. your See, mind. I think, I think I'm trying to pick my battles a bit more. And I, I've had a real fight over the last year. Since I started talking about like mental health and stuff, I felt quite helpful for the first time, I think. And I sort of think, oh, right, OK, this is a fight I can do. 
And then I sort of start looking at other fights where I'd like to lend my voice and I'd like to be helpful. And a couple of times I've tried. And then online, I just hate it. I hate what it opens up. I can't fight like that. I'm not useful like that. So I've just kind of gone, well, all right then. I don't do it like that. I'll write shows about it or I'll write long pieces about it. Some people are really good at being really quick and cutting and they, it doesn't hurt them to enter into all these battles on social media it's just not how I'm effective so I've just decided to go well why keep trying to swim when I'm a runner or do you know what I mean like pick your weapon so what have you been talking about in terms of mental health does that sort of come into this show as well I mean you're talking a bit about the anxiety that you have about some of the eco issues that are around at the moment yeah I mean I'm doing less on mental health this year so last year I did a show that was totally about mental health and eco-anxiety and then failing to conceive a child um, and how that impacted my mental health and then sort of deciding not to have children, biological children, because of climate change. Um, so that was last year's show, which I've, I am still talking about that because I really wanted to keep climate change in this show and obviously I just I can only ever write about what I'm thinking about and obviously if you've got anxiety about climate change you're constantly thinking about climate change. So that's like a massive thing in, in this show. But I did want to be a little bit less navel-gazy. In my CBT, my cognitive behavioural therapy, one of the things that I really found helpful was this idea of if I think I'm frightened of something, to walk that fear back to to the root and find the actual cause of what's symptomatic in, you know, thinking I'm afraid of missing a train. Actually, the root is that I'm not secure enough in my career or my... Do you know what I mean? So that I wanted to then go, can I apply that to lots of things that I see social anxiety about? So when I see, like, gender coming back up again and you know flaring or if I see racial tensions and I see all these things and I don't know how to help can I walk it back to the root and find the root of the problem and who's stirring that root because taking that out means you haven't got to fight a hundred people who've listened to that 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 was the kind of idea of it it is funny despite how I've made it sound Despite it sounding like you're going to come and sit with a very tense woman who's going to, like, not blink for an hour and stare at you. It is funny, I think. So don't worry about that. I believe you. You were at our stand-up show last year in Edinburgh. And this year, you're going to be at our In Conversation show on the 12th of August. So that's at the Stand Comedy Club. And you should all buy tickets for it. But you should also buy tickets for Laura's show, Knee Jerk, which is at the Gilded Balloon. And it is on at 5.15 daily from the 31st of July to the 25th of August, not the 14th. Not the 14th. (laughs) Never the 14th. Where can we follow you to keep up to date with how your Edinburgh run is going and other stuff? Because, as I said earlier, we're at the BBC now because you've got, you've got other shit going on, haven't you? Yeah, I've got to go and record some radio stuff. It's very exciting at the moment. It gives you lots of fun things. I'm probably most active on Twitter, but... I, I, don't um, shout at her. No, don't shout at me and don't come there expecting me to be cutting because I try now to only tweet nonsense and I'll deal with serious stuff in other places. Um, I love my Instagram if you want pictures of allotments and musicals I've been to see. And I'm also on Facebook. I do try with that one, but I feel like the poor Facebook people mainly get ticket links. <laughs> so I've run out of funny stuff by the time I get there. At Laura Lex, which it's l-a-u-r-a-l-e-x-x and I think Instagram I'm Lex Laura because I was late to Instagram and Facebook Laura Lex Comedian 
I think. Google it. Laura next. Laura, best of luck at Edinburgh and thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Can't wait for the 12th. I am joined on the phone by comedian, actor and all-round fierce bird, Tiffany Stevenson. Tiff, hello. Hello, hi. So on the pin tweet that you have got promoting your new forthcoming Edinburgh show, Mother, you say, I was going to lay off the reproductive rights this year, but shit got real. So one, thanks for not laying <laughs> off it. And two, please can you tell us about Mother? I can tell you about Mother. I can tell you that already some people have threatened to boycott the show. Really? Yes a group called Precious Life. Did you want them in the show? <laughs> well, I, I'm i obviously devastated there's some people who never intended on coming to the show in the first place. <laughs> and are actively boycotting it. And I think about 20 million people are actively boycotting it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking about reproductive rights. I guess I'm talking about control of women. And the show is currently at the moment is opening with a story that went viral which is about what happened in Starbucks which I described as wound bothering which is a phrase I've used in my other shows but um, it's a sort of micro thing what happened to me and then what I like to do is take you know this incident or personal thing on a micro level and look at it from a macro and say what does it mean societally because there were three very distinct responses to this story. So what does that mean in the, out in the world for society? How we respond to this story is kind of telling us how we see women in the world and what we, what we view their worth to be and whether that is linked to having children. And obviously I'm exploring being a stepmother as well because I'm a stepmother and all the amazing connotations that come with that word. Yes. We had a big event for Northern Ireland to raise money for groups that are, you know, sort of protesting the draconian sort of laws there at the moment. And I've talked about my stand-up for a few years, and obviously now things are moving forward, but we've yet to see what the result of the this vote will be, because it's a non-binding thing, but it is a commitment by MPs, I guess, to hold. I spoke to Danny from Alliance for Choice, and she was very positive, but there's also a lot of time and space for people to step in and fuck it up, basically. Yes. Yeah, and I think I think that's another thing that I'm looking at in the show as well. I think when we talk about, you know, sort of agents of the patriarchy, but they can also be women. I'm also discussing people like Candace Owens and, and Arlene Foster mm-hmm. because it's not just men. There are men with power that are enforcing this, and then there are also women who are upholding it and maintaining it. So I think it's important to have a di- sort of dissection of that. And it's also about class and privilege as well, and I guess that happens from birth really i mean to, you know if we go back centuries before there was a patriarchy it was a matriarchy and if a child was born a queen then that child was royalty if a child was born of a goat herder a child would be a goat herder so the lineage went with the mother that's an unconsensual act for everyone being born <laughs> and how we all muddle through that and this is all sounding a bit broad and loose at the moment but you know this is it's, it's, it's about life as well. It's about life and what we consider to be worthwhile and what so many people focus their time, effort and energy on. Obviously, you know, if you're a girl, you have all right the wound and as soon as you come out into the world, you actually lose rights as soon as you're born female. Yeah. So it is an exploration because I, I touch upon homelessness in the show as well. It's sort of interesting to study or look at how obsessed we are with the beginnings of life or the yeah, potential for yeah, life. Yeah, definitely. And then once a child is born, no one gives a fuck anymore. 
exactly. Socio-political, personal, and overtly political. You know, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm doing it right, then I'm hitting those three things. It's my best shows. So, of course, they've been personal to me. The word mother itself being loaded, my experiences of motherhood, my experiences as a 17-year-old who has choice and reproductive rights versus this kind of worldwide obsession with shutting them down and forcing women into sort of three roles, you know, those phases of womanhood, which are ingenue, or like be sexy, be attractive, ingenue, the middle section, which is mother, and if you're not one of those, what are you? <laughs> and then crone or invisibility. Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> um, there's quite a lot to unpack, obviously, in, in all of that. But um, it was my 40th last year, so, you know, that sort of stuff sits there as well. And it's, it's becoming increasingly obvious to me, being a woman with profile online, that some men seem to find the idea that you don't care whether they want to have sex with you and you're not trying to have sex with them. They don't know what to do with that, and the only response to it is violence. And we saw that with the two women on the bus in London, you know, that horrific yeah. homophobic attack. There's a section of society, a male section, that is a real problem. And then I have to say in the show, not all men, I have to kind of explain that I love men, which is insane in 2019, that I have to do that. But um, I'm constantly being told that being feminist means that I'm not attractive, I can't catch a dick like I'm out fishing for one with a big net. You know? <laughs> Come on, let's be honest here. For usually quite a small net. Yeah, yeah. I'm feminist because I receive too much male attention in ways that have cost me in terms of work, in terms of safety, you know, in all of these sort of terms. So I feel like, yeah, like it's an important year to be discussing it and sometimes you wish look politics weren't involved in my show i would love to just do a surreal out but the politics are intrinsically linked with with what i do so i don't have the luxury of being a white middle-aged middle-class man who could just do jokes yeah i've got to say i've followed your career from the start really i've known you quite a long time and your political stuff is fiery as fuck i love it i think it's amazing thank you (laughs) thanks how you make this like devastating draconian stuff really funny is incredibly impressive so what is the process there how do you go about making what we've just discussed which is really serious and affects so many women and men as well how do you go about making that sort of stuff funny well i think firstly the ridiculousness of it i think if you (laughs) sometimes you know sometimes depending on how i approach a topic sometimes with difficult stuff i sort of feel bringing it out into the light and just talking about it means we can, if we can laugh at it, then we can start to deal with it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I know that there's a lot around comedy at the moment that says you can't talk about certain subjects or they're triggering. Or I made a comment about depression on Twitter recently, and, and oh my goodness, you know, I was told I was diminishing male depression by saying that it tends to be viewed in men as if they're tortured geniuses and have a deep psyche and an understanding of the world's ills and that they're important, whereas women, we're normally, like, they tell us we're old, probably single, mad. Just hysterical. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, hysterical. And that is factually the how, like, the media and society has viewed mental illness. And in that, I'm kind of, then I'm forced into kind of going, look, I've had these experiences, but it shouldn't just be about me having those experiences. It should be that, Everything is up for grabs. Everything, you can make comedy out of anything. It just depends on what your angle is. So, of course, I can talk about sexual assault if I'm going to make fun of rapists. And that's how I'm going to do it. It's never going to be about the victim. 
it's normally about the angle. Am I punching up? Am I looking at something in the right way? Mm-hmm. How do I make it funny? Sometimes it's exploding stupid logic. Sometimes when people have really, really bigoted views, the easy way to pick them apart is look at the logic of them. So I think with stuff about equal marriage before the plebiscite in Australia, this is a few years back, I met a woman after my show who said to me, marriage is between a man and a woman. That's just the way it's always been. Which then prompted a whole routine about stuff that, you know, that's like the stupidest anti-progress argument that exists. (laughs) You know, like because up until 1911, it was only men who voted because Australia had women's suffrage seven years before the UK. And I thought, they'd be so far ahead then and so far behind now. Time difference. You know, a stupid thing like time difference, but also time difference related to attitude, ideas, everything. And then I take it back to, like, before we were human, you know, flinging crap at the walls. So I take us right back to fit. So that's where the comedy comes from. The comedy comes from that piece of, like, stunted logic. And in the current show, I have a bit about Ben Fogle, who is kind of a lovely guy, I would say almost denied. He's really sweet, but he I, I did a radio show with him and was talking about climbing Everest and he was also talking about opportunities that he'd been given and how he failed at school and, and that was so great for him because people were just very kind and gave him a go. And, you know, I'm there as a working class woman going, God, I, you know, like if we fail, there is no second go. There is no chance. And also you failed on behalf of all women. If a woman fails, then it's all women have failed. Exactly, exactly. And... Um, and then I sort of click apart a bit that he's in the show, which is climbing Everest made him realise in order to truly feel alive, you need to be close to death. To which I say, I'm a woman. I don't, I don't need to climb Everest for that. <laughs> like, yeah. our lives are some kind of extreme adventure. So that's how I begin to get into that. It's just about taking a look at it from another angle. And, and you know, I, I always want to take particularly challenging topics. And that's comedy that I that I do and I, I love it when other people can do one liners and it can be unconnected or they can do a surreal show or they can do character stuff and I I love watching it. It's just it's just not how I how, how I do it. Let's go back to Mother and let's touch on that poster because it is quite the thing, Tiff. It is pretty incredible. <laughs> Could you talk it through for our listeners please? Oh the uh picture of me pregnant with myself. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That is the poster, although the poster has now been changed. Um, oh, right. Okay. What, yeah. what have you got now? Well, well, now it's my face crying blood. Is a little bit of a nod to Donald Trump. She's bleeding out of her eyes. She's bleeding out of her wherever. And also just a kind of nod to that sort of, you know, Virgin Mary crying kind of a little nod to Aronofsky's mother film, which I had a few issues with. But, you know, we don't have time to get into my <laughs> complete review of that film. I think we're going to have that poster as well. I think we're going to have a couple of them around. I don't know. There's been various debates over it. I mean, comedians love it because I think it's really silly more than anything else. Yeah, it's it's funny. That poster (laughs) is funny and it's really, really silly. But I think there were concerns that that it might look like I was doing a show for, like, new mothers. I'm not not sure, you know, and how much of my face you could see and... Yeah. How much, how triggering this is to the precious life, life group. Well, in fairness, the poster of you pregnant with your full 40-year-old adult self was pretty much yeah. how they were just sort of portraying the babies when I went over to Ireland when McPhil the Eighth was happening. <laughs> yeah. At yeah. 16 weeks, yeah. they can do a stand-up comedy show in Edinburgh. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> they have dreams. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so they like that kind of provocativeness of it. But I guess the difficulty being if people see that, do they know, if they know my work, if they've seen me, I don't know, or people just do nothing, or if they've seen me on Mock the Week, do they associate that image or that person with the person that's doing stand-up comedy as opposed to the other one? Well, you can clearly see it's me, and it's quite a striking image as well. But um, I love it so much, and it was the original concept, sort of artwork that I had for the show. Yeah, so I love it. I've requested that we have a few, just to see if we can get a few out and about. Good. So you might see both versions of the poster. I think they're both, like, quite explicit statements of where women are in the world at the moment. Yeah, bang on. Can I ask you about womb botherers? It is such a great term. I've, I've chatted to you on Twitter about how much I love it. Presumably you have got a lot of shit from those sorts on Twitter. Yes. I also wore a T-shirt recently when I was in Los Angeles that said, thank God for abortion on it. And that, interestingly, in person sparked uh, a huge response from women high-fiving, <laughs> coming over to say, that, oh my God, that is so great. We love it. And then one woman who was, you know, maybe in her late 60s was upset and she said, I'm so sorry, we thought we'd fix this. This is while I was in America, you know, mm-hmm. and the rolling back of one versus way that's happening, a devastating experience. Oh, like Alabama just seems to think that Gilead is exactly what they should be aiming for. It's horrifying. Yeah, yeah. Missouri, misogyny, depending on how you want to spell it <laughs> on any given yeah. day. Like, it, it, the states are starting up, Georgia as well. I don't normally wear T-shirts with kind of statements on them like that. Uh-huh. So it was an interesting day. And then, of course, online, someone came online, and I think it was via the precious little people, but it might have been because they have links to, like, right groups in the States. Uh-huh. And, so, and it was a man with a picture of a fish in his profile, like he'd been fishing. And he said, you should have been aborted. I hope you get hit by a truck. To which I replied, that's not very pro-life, is it? Um, <laughs> so, yes. Is the short answer. I when you talk about wound bothering, when I put stand up clips up there and make jokes about abortion, it, it kind of sets them off into a rage. And I find it interesting that people could be so upset by a thing that they don't have to actively participate in. Like if you don't if you don't want to have an abortion then don't have one. I know, but right? Going around trying to prevent other people from making their choices is crazy. It's like they think that if abortion is available, it's compulsory, and that's not how it works. Yeah. yeah. And it'll always happen. You just make it less safe. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of the politicians pushing for this in the States also have, like, a list of mistresses that they've procured the services of an abortion doctor for. So yeah, absolutely. the hypocrisy is quite sort of mind-blowing. What did you think when potential UK Prime Minister Jeremy Hunt said he would like to bring the time down to 12 weeks? I thought we should extend it to however old he is. <laughs> Where can people follow you being absolutely fierce on Twitter? At the Stevenson. Instagram as well, but I'm still very much working it out. <laughs> Join I'm the enjoying, club. I'm, yeah, I'm enjoying Instagram stories. And where can people see you at the Fringe? Oh, I'm on at the Monkey Barrel, 9.15 every day, <laughs> uh, apart from the last... Yeah, I don't have a day off. I'm there every day. It's on the 31st, I think, my first show. She's in book in advance, which I would suggest doing if you want to guarantee a ticket. And I've kept the price competitive, I think, just because I wanted to give people an opportunity. I don't want to limit it to you know, someone can't afford to pay this much money out for a ticket. Yeah. So there is a pay-what-you-want element that you need to be first-come, first-served for that. Otherwise, it's a tenner, which I think is 
reasonable. And you're also just about to appear in the new series of Game Face. Yes, and And also, uh, you've got your own podcast. It's called Tiny Revolutions. Yes, Tiny Revolutions, yes. Tiff, thank you so, so much for chatting to us and have a brilliant time up in Edinburgh. No worries, thanks for coming to the show. I'm definitely going to come to the show. Hello. Just a reminder of all the details of all those shows if you find yourself in Edinburgh. Callie Beaton's show is called Invisible and is on at the Assembly George Square Studios from July the 31st to August the 26th, although not on August the 13th. It's on at 5.10pm. Tiff Stevenson's show is called Mother and is on at the Monkey Barrel from July the 31st to August the 25th at 9.15pm. Desiree Birch's show is called Desiree's Coming Early and is on at the Caves, Heroes at the Hive from August the 1st to the 25th at 7.40pm. Laura Lex's show is called Knee Jerk. It's at the Gilded Balloon at 5.15 daily from the 31st of July to the 25th of August. She's having the day off on the 14th. Jessica Foster Q's show Hench is on at the Monkey Barrel from 1.30 every day from the 1st to the 25th of July. She's having the 12th off. Also, she's doing the Hoovering podcast live at the Monkey Barrel on the 13th and the 14th of August at 3pm. Thanks very much. Standard Issue for All Women.